Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 97, and I'm Roger Pang from the Johns Hopkins Data Science Lab, and I'm here with Hillary Parker of Stitch Fix. Before we start the show, I wanted to remind everyone that Hillary and I will be doing a live episode at the RStudio conference in San Francisco on January 30th. If you'll be attending the conference, please do say hi and introduce yourself. I'll be there basically all week, uh, and so we always love meeting our listeners. Uh, and we have a link to the RStudio conference in the show notes in case you're interested in attending and registering. Uh, in this episode, uh, Hillary and I will be following up on the future of R. Uh, we'll be talking about reproducibility versus building systems, uh, the proliferation of text-based formats, and why open source developers have so little power. All right, you ready to start? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so... Like, uh, first, happy 2020. Oh, yes. Is this the first? Yes, this is the first. Well, technically, yeah. it's <laughs> it's not the first episode of 2020, because episode 96 came out in 2020, but we recorded it in 2019. Oh, right. Yeah, so, a mini, one of the mini episodes. Yes, where we talked yeah. about R from 10 years from now. So, oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but this is the first time we have talked in the new year, so happy 2020. Yeah. Did you see my ophthalmologist joke? I did, and I enjoyed it. And uh-huh. I can't, but I, I guess they must be hearing it a lot. I, yeah, I don't. And it, it, I was proud of myself because it was genuinely like an organic joke that came to me in the moment where I was making an appointment with my eye doctor. And this was in late 2019. And so it was the annual meet, like annual appointment in 2020. And I was like, hey, it's going to be a big year for you guys. <laughs> and, they, and the woman just didn't even like no no bat of an eye not even a like pity smile <laughs> that i think is like i mean first of all when i read that i laughed out loud like i thought that was a good one but <laughs> Thank i feel like you. if you work in an ophthalmology office you have to at least like you know acknowledge that i don't know i mean it's not like it's the end of 2020 and you're telling this joke right it's like... yeah right no it was anticipatory I yeah I don't know I can't explain it I mean it's possible she just didn't hear or she was just stone cold <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like no I'm not humoring you with this <laughs> she's probably like this is a place for work <laughs> you know, we are this is a professional environment so someone wrote back and said that they had worked at a dentist office and they heard the joke what time is my appointment is 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 it at two hurty like does your tooth hurt uh-huh for 230 and i was like no. that's not funny that's no. not funny no. that's and like and she apparently she heard this a lot and i was like now that i would not give a pity smile to that's like, a stone cold stare like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like like no no i i still don't know whether to humor people with the hillary clinton thing because it still happens to this yeah. day okay but oh but that's but come on. I mean that like the that is something that like happened that can happen at all times because your name is always Hillary, right? I know. Like, yeah. 2020 only happened like for the last it's only happened happening for 10 days, right? So Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it's just a year of humoring people. <laughs> yeah. Or slightly longer than a year. Right. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, yes, happy new year. Yeah, happy new year. It's, we'll we'll all see clearly this year. You know, so the last three episodes we released were little episodes, um, and uh, I actually edited them, So, which is like, I don't do that anymore for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. But as a result of editing them, I actually listened to them, and uh, <laughs> and I was thinking, hey, this is a pretty good podcast, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in the last episode, 
which is 96, we were talking about like, well, what's R going to, what's going to happen to R in 10 years? Um, mm-hmm. And um, first of all, like I kept thinking as we were talking that like 10 years, not a long time, like probably nothing's going to happen or not nothing, but like, it's not like R is going away. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. but we did talk, you, you mentioned a couple of other like software packages that you use that, uh, and one was like Looker and another one was uh, the image one, which I can't remember. Impura. Impura. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about how, you know, I think there are these alternations between like software that kind of does everything and then mm-hmm. software that does like one thing. Yeah. Um, and I think what you could think of R as being like a general purpose data science kind of conglomerate. And what I heard you saying, as you mentioned, mentioned these other packages, is kind of like, well, I need a special package to deal with this one thing, right? And uh, because it does it way better than like even like a highly optimized R program might do. Um, and uh, and then I could see like the various aspects of R's functionality being picked out and kind of like special, you know, built like you build a new package to like deal with this one thing. Um, and, uh, and R has typically been kind of strong at kind of like being allowing you to glue those things together. But I could see, you know, essentially I could see like an unbundling of the R system. Whereas people focus on, well, 90% of my time is doing like, you know, image management or whatever. So I'm just going to like use this other thing instead or mm-hmm. you know, something like that. I could see a scenario like that kind of unfolding. Well, it's also interesting because you talked about this a long time ago with Excel of like coupling the database and the, not the language, but I don't know, like the, the IDE is the database interface or something, you know, where like, like the code, the coding for well, like with Imperate specifically, the idea is that the coding would essentially live very in a very similar place to where the data lives itself, or or at least where you interact with the data visually. And then, and then I think I was talking about like you could like modularize that so that if you wanted to use R at that point, you could like Looker has that I think where you can code in other languages sort of within the UI within the Looker UI. I don't know where I'm going with this exactly. <laughs> But it, yeah, I, I think, I mean, yeah, it's always nice to have a highly specified tool for what you're doing. And then I think, but then I think the beauty of tidyverse is that eventually everything turns into the same analysis problem (laughs) or like the same like paradigms of analysis, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's arguably the strength and the weakness, right? And so, um, I think one thing that could be interesting to track is to see like what tool becomes the primary point of contact with the user, um, and I think like it's like you know it, you could think of is it like well I use R and I bundle together all these other tools these external tools, uh, or it could be like I could use I use this other tool and R is one of the languages that I script in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of depends on how that that evolution just depends on the market I think and the. And the various use cases, and I think it depend. It could be that R becomes like a, a language that you know is embedded within something else, or mm-hmm. R is like the primary interface, and it calls out to like these other tools. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly right. And at least right now, yeah, like R Studio and like I would say Jupyter Notebooks too are kind of making the play that like you port everything to them eventually. Right, they they are the point of contact. Yeah, although it's just, I mean, with the image one, it's just, I mean, this is sort of what they run into, like, I feel like I'm not being very articulate, but 
once you get like into massive amounts of data that are highly structured or I mean with the image stuff it's kind of unstructured data but still like you know you have to optimize for very certain types of searches or like certain types of caching and I just think that stuff can't be generalized yeah yeah and so you couldn't our our would have to our studio would have to work so hard to be able to do any of the like image visualization stuff I mean it just like I just don't think it would work. Well, I I don't think that that's a good use of their time. I mean, the logical thing to do would be to call, to allow like some connection between the two, right? Well, yeah, and that's what and that's what I've been doing. So I use the Impera front end like extensively, and then like so just looking at images, right? But then if I need to actually do analysis, I hit their API. That's un like is an unstructured database. Well, I don't, it's JSON data. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, if you have some images that are one sort of class of image versus another, so I can kind of like subquery classes and get certain fields and those fields aren't always filled out or, you know, like it's a somewhat messy data set, but they've essentially just set out, set up a live service for me to hit. Right. And so whenever I need information, I just like ping the service. And I can only do that from R because of Reticulate, <laughs> where I actually run like the Python request package from within R. Ah, okay. Yeah. But then it's just like, that's the only thing that needs to be Python. I just like do a request dollar sign get or post or what, you know, like one of those. Right. And like pull over this huge data set of like, some essentially like SQL query, although it's in their like IQL language. Um, and then, yeah, then I have the data I need and I then like get it into the tidy format and then bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> Analysis happens. And then you work your magic, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is again, the, the like, that's been the biggest change between grad school and like industry, which for me represents going from kind of like ad hoc scripting to like tidyverse type workflow, which is that you spend 90% of your time getting the data into the right format. And then once you have that, it's like, bam, 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 things happen really fast. Because then you can just reuse, you've like memorized, memorize is the right word, but you just, you have like the sentences on hand to say like, okay, I'm going to group by this. I'm going to like, you know, summarize that way. I'm going to make a plot. And like all that code just comes out fluently. Right. We had so, okay, so we got an email mm -hmm. uh, from Ben, Benjamin. And I, I just want to read this because I thought it was kind of humorous. He says, I'm a software engineer and I was recently tasked with benchmarking network protocols for a prototype device. Um, and, and so he saw the opportunity to do like a little data analysis. So he set out to build a, a reproducible workflow. He says, in this case, I figured the best way to do it would be to implement simple versions of all the protocols we were considering and then write a bash script to deploy the client servers to the various components of the system, whatever. So he says, writing up the network protocols was simple enough, but then I ended up spending basically half the day writing and tweaking the bash script only to finally decide at 5 p.m. <laughs> to just SCP the executables around and run the test manually, which took about 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So he says, I'm curious if you two have ever experienced something like this, and at what point is it better to sacrifice a bit of reproduce for efficiency yeah this is the story of my life <laughs> <laughs> i would say this happens like all the time <laughs> for me i feel like 
what makes me different. You know, I feel like I'm like going through an identity crisis of like, am I even a data scientist at this point? Because I almost always default to the second thing he did. Like, not so I wouldn't say reproducibility for I am into reproducibility, but my reproducibility would be like, let me make a file where I record the manual things I'm about to do. <laughs> like, like a super simple example. I will just assume like copy paste code and change the numbers like one, two, three, four, rather than do a for loop where it's like, yeah, I had one through four. Like, oh, I just, yeah, yeah. I don't know what, and it, I can tell when I see other data scientists that they do what this guy did, which is like work all day to try to make some, like, this is almost like the function thing we were talking about, where I see right. people writing functions and I'm like, why did you write this function? Like, I, I don't see the purpose of like bundling this into a function for this type of script. Like, you can just run the code that's inside the function thing. Well, you know, it, there's like, um, so there's kind of like, you have to decide between, are you going to do the thing or are you going to build a system for doing the thing? Yes, right. exactly. And uh, to me, it's almost like a frequentist Bayesian kind of decision, right? Because <laughs> it's like, do we, like, you know, the, the frequentist Bayesian thing is kind of like, do I care about the data or do I care about data that look like this data, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, the frequentist would be like, well, I care about, I don't care about this data. I care about things that look like this data, right? Uh, whereas the Bayesian would be like, no, it's just this data set, right? So <laughs> I feel like that you, so you have to, like, decide, okay, do I care about this task or do I care about tasks that look like this task? Mm -hmm. And I feel like more and more in my work, it's just like, I just care about this task. Well, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's your. That's a really good way of putting it. It's like the, yeah, like reproducibility shouldn't be analogous to I'm building a system to do this thing, even though they're highly correlated. That that's a that's an excellent point. That is like that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so it's like yeah, like as long as you've written down what you did somewhere, that's usually good enough. Right, and I think this. This person, this person who emailed in Benjamin, he, he's clearly trying to build a system for doing the thing. Yeah, exactly. Right? Which and is, that, and again, know. like I, I think especially for engineers dabbling in data science, I don't want to say dab. I think dabbling is like, I mean, what he's describing is like what a data science job is, right? Right. <laughs> and so it's, um, but if you're coming from engineering into data science, this is a very common trap to fall into. And then even within, I see statisticians doing it too, although a little less so, but like even people from other technical fields, like I see it in my department a lot where most people were trained in other technical fields and are coming over to data science. I mean, it's, I mean, to me, it's just kind of shocking that there's not more people interactively programming like I, I feel like there's this assumption that you're supposed to be a system builder and it's like wait but why like <laughs> yeah no i this is arguably a longer discussion uh <laughs> i feel like we do come back to this every once in a while uh mm -hmm. but i feel like there's actually and i need to think about this a little bit more but there's actually like a principle here um which is that you know the only time i've ever felt com like felt like it was worthwhile to build a system for like doing a task is like when at least in my environment it's like when it's like you know i i foresee like many similar projects with the exact same people your collaborators meeting 
and with like like very similar like either the same data set or very similar kinds of data um and it's like there's going to be a sequence of these kinds of things that i don't want to have to do it by hand every time right yeah exactly but and that's like a rare scenario first of all you have to be working with the exact same like if you're working if you're switching between different collaborators it's almost impossible uh with unless you can dictate to them like here's how it's going to be done um because like i i just feel like with every analysis project if like if you say, well, it's, it's just going to operate according to this system, then you're kind of imposing your will on those people. Yeah. And uh, whether that's appropriate or not, it depends, right? I think uh, I just feel like every new project that I kind of start up, like I feel like I need to go to them and be like, well, how's this going to work? What's the data going to be? What questions are we asking? And it's never going to be exactly the same. And so I'm going to have to do like massive, custom, massive like rewriting of things, or I can just like, you know, start over basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, well, exactly. And I think that there was someone linked a tweet once I was railing about because this this manifests frequently with me with like A/B testing systems where I'm just like, where they, you know, they just don't. It like keeps you away from the analysis. It's like, oh, don't bother analyzing this. We'll automate that. And to me, it's like that's the whole point of the job is to like understand what's going on. And someone linked to a tweet where the person said, whenever you start to automate, you're automating mediocrity. And I thought that was like perfect. It's oh, I didn't like, see that. Okay. Yeah, it, this was a while back, but I was just like, yep, that's exactly it. You kind of take like an average like mediocre analysis because you can't make it too fancy because everyone has to be able to use it you take that and you're like okay now we automate this and it's just like i mean it it's a question of like what are you what what do you see as your job just like what is your job description and what how are you trying to add value because if you're gonna lean on an automated tool like that then you clearly think you're gonna add value somewhere else which again, like maybe that's fine, and I'm not saying that like doing A/B analysis is like the most important thing that any data scientist could ever do, but it's just like, and I wish there was more explicitness around that, where it's like, okay, we think that it's more important to move fast and not care too much about you know having the most insights from our experiments, which is totally appropriate, but just say that, you know, right, right. Yeah. And then like my way of being reproducible is that I do create like a, this kind of package like file git repo like file system that is the project template thing which I've talked about which so it's like I create something that's like highly reproducible. It's just not that it it's not a system. It's like standalone. And then when I start something similar, I usually like copy that over <laughs> and like use that as my starting point and then change stuff, you know. And uh, so, yeah, that's sort of... I think you should revel in it. Yeah. No, I think I'm right, obviously. <laughs> I, I, I realize you don't need that, like, reinforcement, but... No, no, uh. yeah. <laughs> Healthy ego. No, it's... Yeah. But I... Um, no, no, but I don't know. This is something that does get under my skin sometimes. And I don't want to suggest to this guy, like, it's not... It's totally... I get it. I think because when you're in a culture where like everyone's doing that, it starts to really grate on you because you're like, well, oh, that's like everyone's accepting this way of working and it doesn't have to be yeah. how we work. Um, so yeah, like, like a good copy paste is your friend. I was going to say, I finally 
do have something that I'm like, I think I've mentioned this before. I finally have a coding task where I was like, I should make a package for this. <laughs> that was like the first time in like my six years as a data scientist <laughs> where I really was like, saw the utility of creating this package. And it's for like a very specific image generation product process. So like we have, and this is like a whole thing, but you know, now it's kind of more public knowledge that we have this outfit algorithm that generates outfits that my coworkers are building. Um, and I'm sort of tasked with like, what data do we collect for it, which kind of runs right into like, how do we QA this? And so I'm constantly generating pictures of outfits. Like I hit their endpoints and I'm like generating pictures. And then I put those into various tools for like rating them good or bad. Um, like we use label box right now. So it's like, yeah, that looks good to me or no, this outfit looks like crap. Like, <laughs> And so <laughs> I have to, I generate those images in R using image magic. Um, and I started to be like, oh, I should add like the color. Cause sometimes you can't tell the difference between navy and black if it's like a smaller image. And so I was like, I should add like these product features, you know, so I kept copy pasting like kind of complex code for creating these images. And I was like, this is actually the time when like, I just need to import like outfitter package and be able to run like make outfit image. And that will be something that I do in lots of different contexts, you know? Yeah. And like eventually, I mean like my lot, my like, like six month goal is to automate the QA process, but like, I'm going to take my time on that. Like there's no rush to right. automate that yeah. right now. I mean, my life would certainly be easier if that wasn't something to do. But if I rush through it, then I lose the opportunity to be flexible and like respond to the needs of the people who are doing the QA, you know, like, like learning that I needed to add that it was Navy versus black was based on user feedback. Right. So it's like, right. yeah, like once you have a system, it's very rigid and you can't change. And so that's, I mean, this is, yeah, the whole trade off of like, do you move fast or do you have reliable code? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, that's a long rant. So it's the point is like, I mean, I am not, I by no means an analysis heavy data scientist. I mean, I do a lot of like partnership, soft skills, <laughs> but like, yeah, so I'm doing a lot of like collaboration and not as much like working alone in front of a computer eight hours a day. So like you shouldn't use the once in six years metric for like the average data scientist, but also, you know, I have written a fair share of code, so it's not like, I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, and again, like maybe if you're a production data scientist where you're building a recommender system, then that's a totally different thing. That's like building production engineering code versus if you're kind of an analysis focused data scientist or an analyst, like, yeah, that's where your value add is the analysis. So like, the more you productionize, the more you kind of gut your value add in some ways. One thing I'll let my maybe I'll just say one more comment here, which is that when I you know when I first got here to Hopkins, I was kind of working in a group, and we were all focused on doing like a bunch of this is like an air pollution and health kind of research group, and we were all doing like a certain kind of study, and we were doing lots of them, and we were different settings, and it's like that was a setting where I was like I feel like my focus was quite narrow. And I was working with the same people over and over, and I was doing very similar kinds of studies, and uh, the data sets were all very similar. And I felt that I felt the strongest need at that time 
to kind of build software systems so that other people could use and kind of like kind of encode some of the processes that we've been, you know, the algorithms that we've been using. And I, that was where I felt like it was a really strong need to kind of build like what I would call software. Um, but I feel like as time has gone on, like I found myself way more switching between totally different kinds of research and different collaborators and different studies and different data sets. And you know, every day I'm doing something like my, just my focus is all over the place now, so to speak. Um, and, and so I think nowadays I, I, I feel much less of a need to do that kind of work because it's like, I don't see the, there's no payoff really um, uh, to, to kind of systemize something that's going to change like tomorrow, you know? Totally. Um, and uh, so I, I just I think the nature of the, my job has just changed, you know, and it's not like one is right or, the, or one is wrong. It's just that, like, I think in this setting that I currently find myself, it's I, I don't see the the benefit of, like, building a system or building a software you know package. Mm -hmm. Totally. And yeah. My, I don't know if the same has happened to you, you know, over time, but. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like at Etsy, I was doing way more like A-B test analysis where. I did have the impulse there to create a package for like, let me like do just the right amount of like, you know, like I, I would do certain tests. We had issues with like repeat visitors, you know, the data wasn't actually IID. So it's like, okay, how would you deal with that ideally? And our AB testing tool didn't actually deal with it. And again, these are like, you know, I, as in my career, I've sort of shifted focus to like, like kind of like green pasture problems where it's like oh like this whole new algorithm what would the system look like to build it versus like you know the like statistical accuracy of your a b test but i don't like they're both important right um and it just depends if you're at like a really mature company where it's hard to spin up something new then it's like like you have more data and understanding the a b test really well is probably more important but it just, uh, yeah, it's like just being responsive to like the being very, maybe the biggest lesson here is to don't do the work that you feel like is fun. Do the work that's needed. Ah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Do you see what I mean? It's it's easy to say, but tough to live by, I think. Yeah. Very tough to live by. Yeah. But it's, I mean, I think that's part of the, the Achilles heel of many data scientists is that it's fun to create a system and, you know, like build your little software and make a name for it, <laughs> you know, but it's just like, it's not always needed. So yeah, don't fall into that trap. It's a typical growing pains though. And I and not even growing pain. It's just like, this is a, this is a fundamental problem. Not one to be embarrassed about, you know, yeah. it's just, yeah, it's like very common. Yeah. You want to talk about text formats? Yeah, I I have no clue what you mean, but yes. I I finally remembered what I wanted to talk about. Actually, this will be, this <laughs> yeah. will be quick. I was listening to another podcast uh, the other day, the um, the talk show with John Gruber, and he mm -hmm. was they were talking about um, like the he was talking to this guy Rich Siegel who builds a text editor, um, and they were talking about how like text has kind of like surprisingly kind of won the war of like formats <laughs> over oh. time. And in particular, uh -huh. so John Gruber, you know, he invented Markdown. And, mm -hmm. um, and the fact that Markdown is so popular now is, like, unexpected, in, you know, in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, right. Especially if you think it kind of like the evolution of, like, formats from the 90s through the 2000s, like, you know, through XML and that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. Well, like, for a long time, 
it was just like one blog post type thing. Like it wasn't. I remember I would like try to figure out like how do you do italics and oh and markdown. Yeah, it yeah. would always go to this like I feel like it was a website like Fireball or Daring something. Fireball. Yeah, yeah. It was just like a random. It seemed like it was just like a random blog post it well it was hey here's the thing i spun up and like that was like the thing that everyone was doing (laughs) right it's kind of it's kind of amazing actually so he wrote on his blog like one blog post like he basically here's all the instructions you need and that's it (laughs) yeah (laughs) that isn't there anymore or at least it's not the top google result oh well yeah i can see why but uh yeah it's um anyway i think the so they're talking about how like one of the reasons, so text, you can think of text in two ways. One is that it's an it's like a finished product, right? Like you read a document. Um, mm-hmm. And the other is that it's data, right? So, for example, if you write software, the text is really data, right? Mm-hmm. Um, totally. And so, and I think there's a, I guess my point, I, what I wanted to do here, and maybe it's not going to work, is that there is an analogy, I think, with uh, modeling, which I think, it, I think that, you know, if you look at, the, if you think, if you think about, document formats there's so many uh, kind of better ways so to speak to encode a document and like you know for like you know for a while the future was definitely going to be xml right like everything is going to be xml because it's so much more precise and it's you know self-describing and whatever but Mm -hmm. like it never happened (laughs) well i mean it's still used like microsoft word documents are in xml but for the most part we still kind of communicate with text plain text Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm that's why I have trouble with emoji, by the way. Oh, yeah? Like, I, I still just want to do emoticons. I don't know. It takes too long. I don't... Is there some way to do this fast that I don't know about? Because, like, people send so many emoji, and it takes me for freaking ever to, like, scroll through them and find the one I want. I, I'm in your boat. Um... I, I'm just like... I'm like, who is doing this? Do you memorize where they all are? Like... For a while, I had a keyboard that would predict. So I would like write the word pizza, and then the pizza emoji would show up, and then I'd click that, and it would like replace pizza with the pizza emoji. Right. And but then that went away, and now I'm like, <laughs> I have like four that I use. Like I'm like, let me click to the cr- rolling on the floor laughing emoji. Like that's. I think. Well, okay, this is a whole separate <laughs> discussion. I think. Well, first of all, there is a certain amount of memorization involved because I think you know. Program, so, like in Slack, you can just type the name of the. Emoji, well, yeah, right? Slack is way. Then, I use emoji more, but again, I only have memorized like four or five. <laughs> yeah. So I don't like go to the obscure. <laughs> and I think it's certain. I think it's certain messaging applications. You can. It, it allows you to search, um, for emojis. And the other thing is, I don't know if you know this, but. I didn't know this for the longest time, but on like on the Mac, if you do like Control, was it Control Command Space? Mm-hmm. It'll it it brings up the emoji picker. Oh. And you can search uh, there. But like the average person is not doing this. No, I, so I think uh, there may be. It, I don't understand the non iOS world, but there may be some messaging apps where you can search through emojis. I think, and it's just faster. Do you think that people like, you know, the average person who's tweeting or texting is like implementing search or are they just scrolling? I have no idea. <laughs> well, and I mean, well, okay, the point is this actually is related because yeah. to me, the beauty of text is that it's just like there is no, you can type almost faster than you can talk, you know? Like it's yeah. just like so fluent and your brain to product workflow is like, 
lightning speed, you know? And versus when you use emoji, it, like, totally stops it. And you have to, like, like, it's like a lat, it's like something that's so, it's, it's like, more fluent to the reader, but, like, substantially le- less fluent to the producer, you know? Right. And so, I, I feel like the XML is the same. I don't know. I don't know if this is where it's converging to, but it's just, like, the reason I like R marked out, I'm sure the reason it took off is because it's just easy and low overhead versus everything else is like interrupts your thought process to like do other tasks or I don't, you know what right. I mean? Well, another good yeah. example I think is like LaTeX, right? So mm-hmm. like writing a LaTeX document is like, you have to, how much time do you have to spend setting up like all the document class mm-hmm. and it, like, it's all this like horrible. crap that you have, right? It's horrible, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and obviously there's some benefits because like the mathematical typesetting is like, you know, second to none. But um, but beyond that, it's like it's horrible. Right. So like I just think all that other stuff kind of gets in the way. And um, and so I think there's two things about plain text. One is that it's like it, 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 the time between kind of your thoughts and the document is like minimized. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the other is that it's a transparent format. So even if you're not writing text, like, like think about CSV files, right? Like why do CSV files persist? I, one of the reasons I think is just, it's just a transparent format, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this true. Like JSON is the same way, right? It's yeah. It's like very. You mean so? You mean just like it's very easy to just like drag the file into a simple text editor and like you see things that make sense. Right. Like you can you can open up that file in almost any application and like mm-hmm. at least look at part of it. Yeah. Right. Uh, same for CSV. Right. So. Uh, and so there's, so there's transparency and kind of like ease of production. And I think... Ease of production. I like that. Yes. Yeah. And I wonder if there's a, you know, as in terms of like a modeling analogy, in terms of what is, you know, we have, there are all these kinds of very kind of opaque um, machine learning type models. And I, I think, I wonder if there's an analogy there in terms of like, well, you know, what kinds of modeling approaches or kind of strategies will kind of remain you know years from now are they mm-hmm. ones that are that are there are they ones that kind of like are easy to kind of quickly implement and also are transparent so you understand kind of like what's going on you know yeah that's, that's a good anyway that was my only thought i like that no i think it's the, i mean the deep learning thing the deep learning kind of attitude was like who cares like <laughs> it works right right um and so that yeah like that just seems fundamentally like flawed in terms of understanding the very human need to like understand what is going on right and like in just in terms of again like the politics of like how do you get people on board like like anytime you're working with non data even when you work with data scientists but especially when you work with non-data scientists they're going to want to know like pretty simple questions about like what's driving this model or what and so you just like need ultimately people are going to make their way back to models where they can answer that because it's just easier to implement them if you can answer those questions yeah and so and then yeah ease of production i like that a lot because i think that's I don't know. It, yeah, I feel like for the... So emoji are like my counterexample to the fact that maybe ease of production isn't always important in ways that I don't fully understand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like if if this is like... 
if most people are like sitting there scrolling through these emoji trying to find how like like clearly ease of production isn't like the priority right versus writing like ha 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 <laughs> or like whatever you need to do to communicate the like nuanced emotion you're having but um i feel like for engineers ease of production is important yeah yeah hence our markdown like or yeah. not our markdown and also our markdown replacing uh sweeve and stuff like it, yeah. yeah yeah it's huge i think yeah anyway i have no profound thoughts well i don't think i do either but uh that's yeah that. <laughs> <laughs> well if anyone if anyone has like any emoji insights that i don't know about i would love to know i would too yeah i i have long wondered what is the secret to to rapid emoji generation <laughs> yeah no exactly yes and i don't know it's like there's i don't know who i haven't talked to but clearly i need different friends or someone <laughs> like i need people in my life who could answer this question but i don't have them all right uh you had a topic that you wanted to yes so i um there's like a twitter thread uh, that I continued into an IRL discussion with someone about, like, it was from someone, I think it was, like, a kind of, like, Democrat socialist person, at least if I'm remembering correctly. So it's kind of like, so they're kind of, like, representing views that are around some of the socialism movement which I didn't totally realize. I feel like they have a branding problem, but that's a different, <laughs> that's a different discussion. Yeah. But basically, it was talking about bargaining power for workers, right? So that's like, I think that's like way more of a huge issue than I realized. So, okay, so let me let me talk like let me start with the the example I had from a while back, which was when I was in college in sociology. Um, there was this discussion, so like marriages are these like institutions, right, where you have like bargaining power with your spouse one way or another, and then you have like, and like part of that is like, how could, could you survive on your own? Like, could you leave this institution and be fine, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, in general with women, and like that hasn't been the case. And there's some natural experiment where they have been sending like welfare checks to the men in a marriage and then for some reason they like switched to sending them to a to women and then like divorce rates spiked <laughs> like because uh -huh, like yeah. all of a sudden women had the money and they were like i'm out of here like i was only here like i couldn't leave but now i can um and so it's like yeah when you're empowered enough to like survive outside of an institution then like you will not put up with bad conditions like you're you're more empowered to leave a bad situation. So it's like the similar thing with work where it's like okay, like you the more that you are empowered to leave a job, the better that job will be for you because like the employer knows that you can leave and you're not like desperate for the job. Like you know, it's not like oh my healthcare will go away or oh like I won't be able to pay rent. Like the more empowered you are, the more it's like okay, like, we're here together. This is, like, a mutually, like, beneficial situation, and I will leave if you treat me poorly. And then it's just, like, healthier, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess I, I hadn't really, like, put the put it in those terms of, like, the socialist thing is in part, like, empower, like, the work, democratic workers. I'm, 
I'm sure a lot of people are listening who are like, brr, you're getting this all wrong. But there's like, like various aspects of the kind of like socialist movement um, in uh, America are like around this kind of like empowering workers so that you can have a better work situation. Like it can be a more voluntary situation for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, okay, so the whole point of the thread was like the more bargaining power you have, like people act like it's hard work that makes you money or whatever, but this is all lies. It's actually just like how much bargaining power do you have? And so like if there's like a widget that takes $2 to produce and people would buy it for $10, it's like where will the price fall? And if if like the company has the bargaining power they'll pay the workers $2, but then sell it for 10. But if the workers have the bargaining power, then they would sell it for like $9 and the company would like sell it for 10 or, you know, like, like it, it's not like, Oh yeah, this is all like you are paid for how hard you work and how much value you produce. And that like is how this goes. So in terms of, Open source. <laughs> ah, so that's what this is leading. Yes. That's what this leading to. Yeah. So I was like, okay, this is fascinating because is this saying that software producers and open source have literally zero bargaining power? Like they literally give it away for free and they can't ask for money. Like if they get money, it's like people doing moral good. They're like, oh yes, I'm being like benevolent in like tossing numb focus like ten dollars you know and like what like how did this come to be you know like why because i think that's right i think that those open source developers feel like they have no bargaining power with like the masses right with with yeah with when you said the masses who are you talking about the consumers of okay. the open source software. Oh, the software so like so, yeah, yeah. or like the users, yeah. yeah so like how did that happen like why do they have no bargaining power is it just that like anyone could create this stuff or like this this audience is so entitled that they don't think they should ever have to pay for like something odd is going on you know well i think so i think it comes from it stems from the idea and i think you know you have to remember this was like in the early 80s when this started right uh the idea i mean meaning the ideas not open source necessarily i i think the the idea that you know that software shouldn't have owners mm-hmm. right that it's not like you know so software is different from like a chair or a table which is a physical object and if you have the table that means that i don't have the table right mm. uh, but if you have software i can also have the software like we can both have it right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh and so, so the philosophy, at least with the, with the free software, is that like software shouldn't have owners, right? So, and by therefore, it shouldn't be some. It's not like a commodity that you can kind of bargain over. Yeah. So that's I think that's fundamental issue number one. And so as a result, I think the I, I mean the so the so of course at the time the you know companies like Microsoft and whatever, who who were kind of built on a proprietary software model, were basically like, how are you going to make money, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right? Right. Like. You know, and the argument at the time, and I think still today, is that you make money on something else, right? yeah. And that's where you have, you know, some sort of power, right? You have to make money on consulting or on service contracts or on, uh, you know, upgrades or improvements or you know, you know, feature requests and stuff like that, right? Um, 
but you can't but you you can't claim ownership of the software itself or the code itself right so as a result i think the people who the consumers of the software um they have they always have an alternative right mm -hmm. and having yeah. alternatives is, a, is is the source of power right right and right. so the alternative the, i mean the ultimate alternative with open source is that i could just do it my i can just take the code and do it myself right uh, not everyone is capable of doing that, but that is, and or I could take the code and hire someone else to do it for you, um, and so that I think so, so. At its root, I think that is the issue with. So I think the fact that developers of software don't have power over the their own software is, I think, is by design. Yeah, who thought this was a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get, I get it, sort of, but also. Well, I mean, so the analogies were drawn to things like, if you look at like literature, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, literature has a copyright, right? So, uh, but it doesn't go forever. The point of it is that, like, at some point, it ends, right? And then once yeah. it ends, everybody has it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now, ar argue you could argue that's part of our culture, and you know, everyone should have a stake in our culture and whatever right so um whether software is the same I, I mean i don't know but it's um there's an argument that like you know software i don't know should be available to everybody i don't know if i even agree with that but that was kind of like the dominant thinking in the 90s right well and that was like the very libertarian right like i wonder if, is it right to think of libertarian as like the opposite <laughs> the socialist like it's like we just care about the rights of the consumers. I I don't know if it's like a one dimensional spectrum, but uh, yeah, it, I, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I think, and I think the key thing I think we've talked about this before is that a lot of these ideas came about before the internet. Yeah, um, and yeah. Um, and we're, I think didn't really get updated um, once the internet arrived. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think now we're seeing the kind of results of the two cl crashing together, basically. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so this is interesting because, like, essentially the idea that you can copy things is, like, a huge aspect of it. Like, the fact yeah. that it's not this, like, commodity anymore. It's, like, a copy, infinitely copyable thing. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, when you think about, like, like digital art or newspaper articles or, like, everyone's struggling with this one way or another where you can't, like, yeah, because like, newspaper articles, it's like, yeah, you just have to, like, buy the paper on the article like that the article is printed on and they could control how many times that was copied and you know right there was a finite number basically and like yeah. nobody was going to go out there and like copy it themselves right yeah right like you could but it was too hard whereas now it's like too easy and then i mean with data science specifically there's this idea that there's now there's like big t truth involved of like you have to produce accurate results with this code so there's kind of like another complicating factor too yeah like as a user you should be able to know that this is implementing the statistical thing in a way that makes sense right yeah and you can't do that without also making it easy to copy <laughs> <laughs> there's another so uh, another area is the music industry right so like when people were copying mp3s like crazy right the music industry is like wait a minute how are we going to make any money right yeah um and but that problem was solved by streaming right so mm -hmm. and uh, so now they're doing uh, reasonably well and and streaming has been this, like nobody copies mp3s anymore right so um 
And I think... So, do we need our own stream? It's like you can't use R unless you're streaming it from, like, R-Core or something. <laughs> well, in some way... So, some some software companies have solved this. Uh, I think I think the streaming version of that is is a subscription, right? I mean, it's just yeah. a subscription to Microsoft Office or, you know, mm-hmm. or to uh, Adobe Creative Suite, right? And uh, yeah. And, and uh, I'm actually, I'm very open to using subscribe. Like I subscribe to all sorts of like weird software. Like I have, I have this, like, I mean, this is like, I just need to learn Photoshop. Uh, but I have this tool that I use to create, um, <laughs> complicated, but I need to, I take photos of my clothes and I need to like remove everything except for the piece of clothing, like remove all the background. Right. And there's just this like software online where it's just like, it's like three clicks and it's done, you know? And so I pay for that, like kind of a lot really. And it just like removes the background. And then I'm like, yep, this was worth that $15. Like (laughs) now I have my nice image for free. Is that that like a cloud service? It's called Clipping Magic. I mean, I would love suggestions. They're selling cheaper, but it's just so it's like you literally just like drag it into, yeah, the web UI. It uploads it. It even like auto figures out like what you want to probably clip, you know? Right. And then, and then there's just like a few tools where you're like, okay, put green dots on the thing that you want to save and put red dots on the things you want to remove. And it like figures out where the edges are and then. Yeah, so it's just like super easy. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine if like you didn't want to pay for that, right? Like, yeah. Well, granted, this is not. I'm assuming it's not like an open source thing. No, uh, it's not. But yeah, yeah, it could be open source. If it yeah. were open source, it, I don't think it would even matter, right? <laughs> Probably because like you you need the interface and uh, and you're not gonna like. I guess you could just download it and build it yourself. I suppose. No, but like no, that amount. I mean, eventually, yeah. Like it's like a balance of you know, I'm paying kind of a lot. <laughs> it's not the only way I've invested in my like closet inventory. That's right. I talked about this yes. on here before. So Multiple like, yeah. episodes. I, <laughs> I also pay for like a premium air table. So I've invested monetarily in my closet archiving system. So uh yeah eventually if it was easy enough but it's also i'm just like fine paying for it because i'm like whatever i don't want to have to think about this like this is like this is for work sort of so i don't care yeah but um i think i think the other thing that's changed now is like the professional open source developer world has gotten so much bigger you know mm -hmm. uh I, i feel like uh in the past when open source was kind of starting out like everyone had a job for the most part Right, and they were, this was kind of like in the excess time, right? Like in the on the on the kind of nights and weekends kind of stuff. Ugh, a lot of you know, yeah. Um, and I think, <laughs> but and so like I think not. I mean, some people thought about well, how are we going to make money off of this? Um, but I think now it's much more pressing. Yeah. Yes. And I don't. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I, I think I think there are very there are kind of domain specific answers potentially like for example if you like machine learning algorithms are kind of like not that useful if you don't have any data right um mm-hmm. and so the code itself may not have you could just you know is one thing but then the data that you use to train it for example could it could be proprietary for example and um so i, I you just need to find that point of you know leverage basically that you can charge for well i mean and then with the ui thing it's like well okay so the guts of it are probably way easier. Well, I don't want to say easier, but like 
the UI has like a fair amount of overhead. I mean, I'm sure there's like a large team at our studio that just works on the IDE and not R at all, right? So it's like it's like you have to like build a whole company to support making the open source stuff profitable, you know? It's 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 like a, it's not just like oh yeah we maintain the software well and that's why you pay for it. It's like we had to do all this other stuff <laughs> in order for you to like feel cool paying. Like this other stuff was only in the service of like getting you to pay for the open source. I don't well, know. Well, I, well, hang on a second. Yeah. First of all, I believe the IDE is open source, right? Um, oh, is it? I, I'm almost oh, wow. positive. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's not. And first of all, I don't pay for that. Like, I, I, I mean, I don't pay for mm-hmm. that at all, right? So, the, yeah. I mean, right. I think, and I think this is a useful example because for a long time, the way to make money in open source was to go to enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but you, the problem with that with is that you can't you can't be like an enterprise company as like a one person shop, right? Like, it's not feasible. Like, because like to sell to enterprise, you need like a sales staff, and you need you know, it's just like it's a slog, right? And so you need a company that can kind of support that. Um, and so, but that's usually the way, the route to making money. That's what our studio does. They, you know, they market to enterprise. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what like Red Hat did and all out of the early open source companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas so like the consumer version of whatever they built was free. Um, and so, and because at the time, most enterprises, they didn't, they didn't care about free. They cared about like having a contract for service, having a, you know, it's, uh, stuff like that, right? Um, and they didn't care whether the software was proprietary or not. Uh, but I think the, the the weird middle ground there is like these cloud service providers like Amazon, where it's like they are enterprise and they're just taking open source software and like deploying it um, and not necessarily paying for it. Um, and so because they don't need the support contracts, they don't care about any of that stuff. Right. Um, right. And that's where like yeah. I think all a lot of the you see like article after article about uh, people feel like they're being taken advantage of. Because, like, they're essentially, the the producer is spending so much of their energy trying, because they have no bargaining power, so they're just, like, desperate to get people to use the software, and then Amazon can just swoop in and be like, great, like, we'll, <laughs> we'll take that, we'll, we'll be the people who make it easy for your users to get it so we'll like tap into your boundless energy to get people to adopt it right but then and meanwhile we... people will pay amazon for the privilege of using their service yeah and none exactly. of that flows back to anyone right so yeah like it's decoupling the the like money making part of a good open source company versus the, the like ip well i mean i guess the other thing is like i don't know yeah are these it is like this common good thing. It's like, oh, these software packages, it's like everyone should have access and it's common good that I think the problem is that, you know, with the internet, the internet favors these kind of like massive companies that everyone kind of turns to for a service, like Amazon for example. And it's not like any old open source company can just kind of walk on and be like, "Hey, actually, don't get it from Amazon, get it from me," you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like mm-hmm. they can't they can't do that, right? Um, and so there isn't a lot of there is it's hard to compete i think even if you did have the will and the energy and the resources to compete on open source software to like to become the source of a given package you know it's like everyone's just going to go to amazon because it's easier you know um and so which is true for amazon in general not just well yeah in many (laughs) debates right yeah (laughs) yeah 
Interesting. Well, yeah. So basically, if you become an open source developer, know that you will have no bargaining power whatsoever. <laughs> At least over the code. Over the code. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is helpful. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just odd. It's just an odd situation. I don't know. I mean, we've talked about it so many times. And... Yeah. I think one of the things that makes it odd is that open source actually like it like I would I don't want to say it won, but it like flourished you know i think there was i mean i think there was a time where it could have easily just died right yeah. and then we wouldn't be having this conversation right now and all software well i mean much software is still proprietary right so um it could have been easily that like open source didn't was never a thing and that was it everyone just worked for companies and wrote proprietary software and that was it yeah like right now all of like Everything that we like about the UI for like our studio or Tidyverse or every and whatever that could have just been we could just be like talking about like a proprietary company like and like yeah code where it's like man I just love the UI this is such a great piece of software that I pay for and we would have less subscribers to the podcast because there would be less people talking about it I guess <laughs> well I mean it, it could still be free it's like they don't have to charge for it right. Yeah, I, right. I, I don't think the fact that it's open source and the fact that it's free are necessarily related. I think they, um, you know, they could have charged for, you know, well, they don't, actually, I guess one issue is that they don't sell R. They don't like distribute R itself, right? Uh, you have to go to CRAN and download R separately. Um, but, uh, I mean, they could have charged for the interface, you know, but, you know, chose not to, so. Yeah, okay. Well, I feel like I still don't. It's it's quite the, like, pickle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I still don't know like what I don't know what's right, you know? It doesn't it's just weird. Yeah. Yeah. In your so let me ask you this just to push this a little bit further. In your ideal world, what maybe you don't know the answer to this, but in your ideal world, like what would happen? In my I don't know how, but in my ideal world, people do work and they are appreciated for it and like compensated fairly. <laughs> like that's like the thing I care um, most about that is broken and that and and not just from not like i'm an especially good person it's just like more sustainable that way right like like if you're if you're depending on someone trying to make a name for themselves and they're like working nights and weekends to put software out there so that they become a famous hero, like they will burn out. Right. And like, you see that all the time. And so, and like software packages just like end and I get excited about something and then it goes away. So like, I, I just want like the work to, I want it to be psychologically sound <laughs> the way that we are like, like, cause I, I am in this business partnership with the open source developers. Right. And I don't want to feel like it's exploitative, right? And I guess right now I feel like it is because it's exploiting the worker who is working with zero bargaining power and is working for free and is probably like usually upset about something or, you know what I mean? Like there, it's just, I don't like that. And it's not like this is the only place. I mean, oh my God, like there's still like, kind of a lot of slavery in the world like food like I, I don't know like shrimp if you get shrimp and it's been peeled like there's a high chance that's from slave labor 
or like you know so it's just like i don't i would rather just like not have any of that <laughs> what, what what about this what if we lived in a world where software developers you know shared their source code right mm-hmm. but did not uh release it so did not publish it under an open source license See, that's the thing. I actually think I'd be totally fine with that. I don't, so the like, idea being yeah. that like, you're welcome to look at the source code, mm-hmm. but you cannot build another product based on it. Yeah. I'm fine with it, but I'm also... Well, okay. No, I'm not fine with it because like, Stitch Fix an entire... <laughs> yeah. Like, you'd have to replace a lot of software, probably. Although, but if we could like just pay appropriately for it, then that would be okay, right? Like, we generate so much value from implementing the software in a certain way. You'd have to pay for a license that would allow you to do that, basically. Yeah. And, now, like, I think that would be reasonable. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an argument perhaps to be made that, um, that you know, that software, like, I think we kind of live in this world where we believe that there are just software developers out there kind of, like, on their own con- contributing to projects. Right. And, um, but, and I think that's not something we should maybe, I don't think we should necessarily encourage, perhaps. I mean, I think. Well, yeah, I think that's where it is for me. It's that I see that attitude or like that kind of, I think that that causes suffering, if you will. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it's like, it's like the work life about like the, there's been this culture for software engineers, for tech in general of like, oh, finally, I have a weekend free. I'm going to work on something else. Like, it's just, it's like this, this, like, it's like painful for me because it's like, you know, workaholics or, you know, it's just like, oh no, like this is, this is someone who is not living their best life right now. If like all they're doing is working on code in their free time on the weekends, whatever. And like, I just, I would like to be part of a system that discourages that. And right now I'm a part of a system that encourages that, right? Even though within my immediate orbit, that's not the case. Like, you know, like I can certainly in my immediate orbit be like encouraging my coworkers to like go home at six or, you know, like there's like, and like, yeah, I'm all like involved with like meditation stuff and want people, you know, like, like living a full life is important to me. And I certainly try to like go to conferences and talk about it or whatever. But like at the end of the day, if I'm still using software where the means of productions is people working nights and weekends, then it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> like, or it does matter, but it's like, it like, it's like, it's living a contradiction. <laughs> But then we all are again in like exactly. lots of ways. That doesn't make it not. A, that doesn't make it okay. But I guess this one is one that I think about a lot right now. So. Yeah. Well, you have an everyday kind of interaction with it. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so <laughs> downer. And I'm not trying to imply like I, you know, if people are listening again. Like we're producing a data science podcast in our free time. Like it. Right. <laughs> This isn't like, oh, you can never do work outside of work hour. Like, I think it's great to have passion, whatever. But, like, it does become, it can become a compulsion, right? Like, if you're like, I never want to be not working. Like, that is, like, that certainly is, like, highly consistent with, like, maybe there's some, like, sadness inside to address. (laughs) 
Well, first of all, uh, let me just remind you that there are people who very kindly give us money for this podcast. Um, oh yeah, no, our patrons on Patreon. So yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah. and no, no, it's like that. Appreciate that, especially because we do incur costs. Like, yeah, it's it's nice to like feel like we're being supportive for that. You know, it's like okay, yeah, yeah like this is a mutual relationship. Can I just one thing I've noticed that working in an academic environment, I have. You know, I feel like my thoughts about software have changed, mostly because I've just gotten older. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, I, you know, when you work, you, you obviously, I encounter a lot of students, right? And most students do not have a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And so when they are trying to accomplish certain tasks, you know, I think like many, like most people, they're going to look for the lowest cost option, right? Um, and are hopefully one that's free. Um, and um, which... I think it's totally logical. And I think, so I think there's, and, and many times that option is an open source option or, uh, you know, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. To- yeah, totally. So, and so this is something that kind of they learn early on, mostly out of necessity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it does proceed, you know, not proceed, it does kind of follow them later, you know, later in life where they're, you know, even where they might even be in a position to just pay, you know, $5 a month or whatever it is, right? to but they're kind of thinking is like well there's an open source version there's a free version like why don't i just use that right yeah and then you add in like this kind of like there's like a morality of like you shouldn't charge for things like that's the way it gets it gets like tied up with like weird morality stuff that i dislike yeah where yeah and like it's like oh yeah like this should be about the ideas you shouldn't be trying to make money from this or like you i feel like i see that a lot from ex-academics where it's like like and i think i even like i remember i was when i was thinking about what job to do after grad school and you know was talking to someone about like oh well i guess i could like you know sell my soul like you kind of like say stuff like that right yeah yeah and then, and then that person was just like, that is so condescending. Like, like, <laughs> what are you saying? And I felt bad. It was like a good moment for me of like, yeah, that was actually, you know, like most, like there's an economy, people make money. Like this isn't, there's a lot of like morality stuff in academia that it does not come from a healthy place. Let's put it that way. <laughs> But you know, so. I often get asked for you know various kinds of software recommendations. Uh, just you know, living my life, and mm-hmm. when I make often like when I make a recommendation, the first question that comes back is, "Is it free?" Yeah, right. Yeah. As in, like, there's an expectation, right, that something should be like some version of whatever software I need should be free, right? Um, but you would never say that, like, if you were recommending a car, right? You know, so it's like. Yeah, um, but yeah, obviously, physical again, physical products not the same. Well, same with journalism. It's like yeah, yeah. like people get so cranky about paywalls, and I'm just like, yeah, I pay for journalism. But again, that's like a moral thing on my part. It's like, oh well, I want people to be fairly compensated for their work, so <laughs> I pay for my, you know, subscription to Talking Points Memo, New York Times, yeah. or, you know. So it's like. I, yeah, I don't know. You can barely see people from that high ground that you're on. (laughs) Exactly. And it is true, though, that people, I don't know. I I work with so many ex-academic, not ex-academic, but people came up through, like, grad school and stuff. And, like, uh, the way people spend money is, like, 
loosely correlated with how much money they make, like at best. (laughs) (laughs) Where it's like, you know, you have free food, people are like going for it. Like if you have grad school people, you know, or like the best is like, man, when you go out with data scientists, like you're calculating the tip down to the cent and like you're dividing and you're like waiting against whether or not someone had a drink, like, and then it's like salespeople are like embarrassed for you. Like they're just like, just pay. Like you, who makes the most money on this table? It's on you. You know, like right. it, like there's no like, yeah. So I don't know. It's it. None of this is logical. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> anyway. All right. Um, that was that was it. I had another topic, but we should definitely wait on it. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna end with a very short note, which mm-hmm. is I don't know if you saw, but um, R has a the, the, in the beta version of R is a new color palette, a new default color palette. Did you see this? No. So y- you know that the default color palette, you know about that, right? <laughs> oh R. yeah. Cool. So like. Back in the old days of base R, you had like color equals one is black. Mm-hmm. Color two equals is two red. is red. Yeah, what is color equals three? Blue. No, it's even no. worse. It's green. Is it green? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I was going to say green, like that horrible lime green. Like very bright green. Yeah, I would say yeah. lime. It's a little darker than lime, but. Like a neon. Well, also all the colors in like the deep. So, and then blue is for cyan. Okay, is blue is five. for. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then magenta is six. And like all of the colors were super saturated. Like really. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. like horrible, horrible colors. And like anytime you see a plot now that's like where people are just using the base cut co- like the default base colors, it's almost like I feel you feel the need for like an intervention, right? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like a little embarrassing. Yeah. Like, oh no. Especially because now, you know, there are so many color palettes and there's so many whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's this is an interesting story. The reason is because it's like I feel like you know. So the the core R people decided they they needed to change. First of all, it's like not very, it's not color fli- color blind friendly at all, um, and uh, and also it's like it's pretty ugly. But on the other hand, though, they they felt the need, like with many kind of developments in R, they felt the need for kind of some sort of back compatibility. So they couldn't just change it to like arbitrary colors. Right, uh, like just just grab some other color palette and just replace it. You know, they didn't want to do that because they wanted there to be like if you so if you just run the same code, it's not going to produce the same colors, but it'll at least be like you know close to the same colors, but in a better palette. Yeah. So anyway, there's a blog post that uh, Akim Zelis and Paul Morel and Martin Meckler and Depay and Sarker put up um, about the new kind of default color palette, which is both colorblind friendly or friendlier um and also is kind of like has more kind of contrast and more um covers a wider kind of color range i guess um and uh, i guess it's going to be in version 4.0 yeah wait so are you saying that still one is black two is red three is green but they're prettier versions of those colors right so it's like they kind of like they they're they're basically better versions of those colors yes okay okay. and so but like the like the red and the green that the ones that they chose and they have like the hex codes there if you want to look at it the ones that they chose are are at least distinguishable even in like a kind of colorblind situation 
What is back compatibility for colors exactly? Like if you're just glancing at a plot and you saw that it had the base colors and then you glanced at another plot that had like the new color palette, like at a glance, you would not notice any difference, I don't think. But why is that needed? Why? That's a good question. I think I think because I guess, you know, because if you're using a plot and you had different colors for different, I don't know, subcategories, right? Like you wouldn't want a situation where like color equals one and color equals five were like the same or something. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't want a situation where like because I ran the code under the new R, you can't tell the difference between these two groups or something like that. Yeah, I guess I can see. Or like if you, the text of your papers, like the green line indicates blah, 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 blah. Right, yeah. Yeah, and then it just seems like of all the back compatibility things, that one seems like one you could really get away with. Well, that's a good question. I felt like, I felt, I kind of felt like this was an interesting design problem, right? Because the constraints were, I think, un- in some ways unfortunate, right? Uh, it, I'm sure they thought about just like, why don't we just throw this all out and come up with like a better palette, right? Yeah, like orange and blue being the first two. That's like, I feel like that's like the new normal for like colorblind friendly, right? Right. I, I don't, okay. I don't know. Yeah. But there's, there's definitely, I'm sure that like some colorblind association has like very cogent recommendations for like, if you want people to be distinguished, like here's the best bet based on rates of colorblindness. And, you know, and there's, like, all these packages now in R that, like, let, allow you to kind of, like, you know, to, to simulate what things look like under different situations because there's, like, mm-hmm. 10 different kinds of colorblindness, you know. And so, yeah. Um, and so, and so I think they did all that and they tried to end it the best they could by constraining themselves to be within roughly kind of the nearest neighbor of, like, the original colors. Yeah. So. Well, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to that change. Although I never use the default because ggplot has its own default colors, right? That are different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like I don't really plot in base R that much. So, but there are some other interesting color packages that came out recently that I like. I've gotten more into color just as like a person, yeah. Like fashion, you know, and uh, yeah, I would like to have like pretty colors and cogent i would like a color story you know with yeah. my <laughs> with my coding <laughs> just kind of fun to play with i guess yeah I, it's one of my favorite topics i always have a lecture in my class uh, on color um and just because it's like i just think it's an inter- it's just like an inherently interesting topic and also it's like a, such a powerful way to kind of add another dimension um, oh yeah to the totally. data um it's it's a good intro into the psychology of like impact like you can it's about as scientific as you could get in terms of like okay this color they've done research and it ignites this part of the brain and so if you use this color it will like probably cause this type of reaction like it's almost like formulaic and scientific so versus like other things are a little more fuzzy of like yeah i think like you know graph i mean graphs always going up and to the left is kind of obvious but it's probably harder to like pinpoint like because it stimulates these neurons like up and to the left looks good or (laughs) you know what i mean yeah Yeah. there's all this like perception research yeah 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 Um, and i think in general i feel like visualization is one of those is like the one area of data analysis where there's like hard research you know, yeah. like in hard science, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I've got. Yeah. Well, we solved some problems. <laughs>